The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Greg was well aware that in the past, the first-degree murder cases that usually went to trial were high-profile cases with white victims. Blacks killed by Blacks, Indians killed by Indians, Indians killed by Blacks and vice versa had never been deemed as important as whites murdered by killers of whatever race. Grit made it known that this distinction would be no more. A victim's rights were the same, no matter what race or class. And his job was to see that justice was done on behalf of all. From Death Sentence, the true story of Elma Barfield's life, crimes, and execution by Jerry Bledsoe. Well, welcome back, Murder Bookies. I'm your host, Jill. This is episode 65, Second Cast, The Female of the Species, part three of my trilogy on death sentence, the true story of Velma Barfield's life, crimes, and execution by Jerry Bledsoe. First, thank you for your kind words of support. It is my joy to do this podcast for you and you keep me going. An exciting development. If you're not aware, I am on Patreon. Now you can support the podcast and better join me on Zoom the first Thursday of each month at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll be talking about the books, cases, new developments, updates, and you can help me pick books that I'll feature on the podcast. I'll also be sharing my review of books that I cannot feature on the podcast because there are only so many weeks in a year. And I might include some crime fiction stories that uh, might be a nice little respite from the real stuff once in a while. So join me on Patreon. The link is www.patreon.com backslash Murder Shelf Book Club. Very easy. You can find all of this information on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. I am so excited about sharing all of this with you. Oh, and if something big happens in true crime, we'll do a live Zoom that night, whenever it might happen. Okay, here's the spoiler alert. If you haven't listened to part one and part two, that would be episodes 63 and 64, do so before listening to part three. It seems obvious, but hey, you never know. Some of you told me that you wait for all three parts to be out before listening, and I get that strategy. I do that with some of the the TV shows that once a week, they show up every Sunday or Saturday night. Drives me crazy. I wait till the end of the season. Anyway, previously, we left off. Velma Bullard Herc Barfield was on trial for killing her fiancé, Stuart Taylor, by arsenic poisoning. Joe Freeman Britt, the world's deadliest prosecutor, was seeking the death penalty, and defense attorney Bob Jacobson was trying to save Velma's life. After a slew of doctors, pharmacists, police, family members testifying, defendant Velma Barfield took the stand in her own defense. So you tell me what you think. Did it help her or hurt her? But in the end, 
the very conscientious jury found her guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced her to death. The reactions ranged from relief and elation to despair and depression. The North Carolina Correction Institution for Women had no death row. Cell Block Dorm C, which held prisoners with disciplinary issues, is where Velma was being held as feelings of depression and confusion overwhelmed her. And she was suffering from drug withdrawal big time. Medications were prescribed and tightly monitored, but it would still take 16 months, 16 months to fully wean Velma off all of them. Yet after three days in prison, Velma gave an interview to Raleigh's News and Observer, saying she was drug-free and filled with the Holy Spirit and ready for the gas chamber. Quote, I am guilty. I don't want an appeal. Personally, I'd rather go ahead. End quote. Remember this, murder bookies. Now, capital punishment laws mandate an appeal to the state Supreme Court. Beleaguered Bob Jacobson was assigned to handle this, and with Velma making these statements, she was undercutting him, and he begged her to refrain, just stop. So three days in prison, Velma is presenting herself as a good Christian lady who had attended church for years, teaching Sunday school. Later, she admitted it had all been a facade. Sitting in prison after murdering at least five people, she wondered if she could truly be forgiven, truly have God's love, truly be at peace. She says one night, listening to gospel music, she experienced a religious epiphany. Stirred, she wrote to Billy Graham's ministry, and he shocked her by writing back. A man who had spoken with the presidents was taking a personal interest in her. So Velma found a strength that she did not know existed. And in a very, very gutsy move, Velma wrote to Stewart's daughter, Alice Storms, quote, I am truly sorry for all the hurt that I have caused all of you. When you wept, you didn't weep alone. May the love of God shine upon you, Velma, end quote. She received no response. The Velma Alice knew had been just as pious as the letter writer claimed to be now, and Alice believed that any reason she would be seeking forgiveness had to be self-serving. Velma's appeals focused on several issues. Should the insanity defense have been allowed? Should evidence from the previous deaths have been allowed? The state Supreme Court rejected these arguments. The next step was filing for a stay of execution pending appeal from the U.S. Supreme Court, a lengthy and expensive proposition. But there was some positive news. Velma's daughter Kim's second child had been born, a girl named Sarah Sue. And after meeting the baby, Velma wrote in her journal, quote, To me, she was a living doll. As I looked at her, I cried inside because I couldn't be home with her, end quote. Two years in prison, Velma began to really understand the hurt she'd caused so many reliving the deaths, disgracing her own family. She began reaching out more to others to try to make amends in some way and began helping other prisoners. In addition to a number of other good deeds, Velma began writing letters for women who couldn't read and write themselves. Meanwhile, Ronnie reached out to the American Civil Liberties Union, speaking to local director George Gardner. Eager to help, Gardner acquired Velma's attorney, Richard Burr II, called Dick, who, believe it or not, 
knew little about appealing death penalty cases. In June 1980, Richard Burr's first appeal of Velma's case was declined by the U.S. Supreme Court as it found no fault in the North Carolina death penalty statute. Persevering, Burr told the press, quote, She's resolved to fight, and she and I believe that she will get a new trial at some point, end quote. Burr networked and connected with Fayetteville attorney Jimmy Little. Jointly filing a motion for a stay of execution, they cited 12 reasons, the big one being ineffective counsel, meaning defense attorney Bob Jacobson had screwed up. Judge Maureen Braswell, who is actually the judge who signed the exhumation orders on Velma's victims, was persuaded and he granted a stay of execution and a hearing about a new trial. So November 1980, Bob Jacobson finds himself in a terribly awkward position as his opponent, Joe Freeman Britt, was defending him in this new hearing before Judge Braswell. And regarding Britt, Velma's anger seems to have melted away and she appeared very relaxed in court. But it was contentious, with Britt peppering questions and answers with objections as Bob Jacobson dissected his reasoning and strategy regarding defending Velma during her trial. A new psychiatrist was brought in to examine Velma, Dr. Selwyn Rose, who revealed that Velma's father had sexually assaulted her as a young teen. Rose believed that Velma was not sane, but was not certain that she met the standard for legal insanity, which in a nutshell is not knowing your criminal actions are wrong. On December 12th, Judge Braswell ruled, denying all motions, and a new execution date was set two weeks away. While the lawyers were doing their legal best, Velma was approached by prison superintendent Jenny Lancaster, whose heart was in the right place and believed in making a genuine difference in the lives of inmates. Jenny told Velma that a 15-year-old girl, Beth, who had been tried as an adult and convicted of murder, had arrived facing a 34-year sentence. Scared, confused, she was too young to be in with the prison population. Would Velma take her under her wing? Immediately, Velma agreed, with Beth reaching through the bars to grasp Velma's hands with an intense desperation. Velma learned of the teen's troubled childhood, her parents divorcing, not getting along with her mom. A loner at school, Beth soon began skipping classes, spending her days on the streets. And eventually, she became involved with crimes and was on the scene when a man was murdered, for which she received the 34-year sentence. Beth and Velma would become as close as mother and daughter in the next months, keeping in touch for the rest of Velma's life. Gradually, Velma spoke to her of prayer and forgiveness, which made life and dorm seem more bearable for her. Velma urged her to get her GED because one day she'd be getting out and she'd need it to get a good job. No easy feat, Superintendent Jenny Lancaster got Beth into Dillon Training School. Eventually moved into the regular population, Beth would shout, Mama Margie, as she went by Dorm C to let Velma know she was okay. She did experience a setback, though. As Beth was so young when the killing took place, she had prayed that she would be paroled when she turned 21 and was denied. 
which automatically meant that she'd be serving a minimum of 20 years. But she never forgot Mama Margie and her kind guidance. Thelma would go on helping other imprisoned women who were desperately appreciative of her caring, counsel, and spiritual guidance. Meanwhile, Velma continued her self-exploration, seeking to find forgiveness, and wrote letters to her family, as well as the Edwards, Lee, and Taylor families, to be delivered on her death. Well, on the face of it, good for her. Quote, God has convinced me of how wrong my acts were, how I have wronged each of you, so now I come to you asking you to forgive me. End quote, wrote Velma. As the years rolled on, the appeal process kept grinding, and the state upheld Judge Braswell's findings. More execution dates were scheduled, coming and going. The federal court appeals came next. This required Velma's team to show violations of her constitutional rights during her trial and subsequent hearing. March 12, 1982, the motion before U.S. District Court Judge Franklin Dupree was more than 2,000 pages, and he would request more information from Little and Burr. Well, at least he was looking carefully at the case, lifting the defense team's hopes. Two months later, Judge Dupree issued his ruling going against them on every count. Quote, the evidence against her was overwhelming. She was convicted and sentenced in strict compliance with constitutionally sound statutory scheme by 12 of her peers. The death penalty should be imposed in this case, end quote. He stated that Judge McKinnon had not committed any constitutional violations by allowing the jury to hear about Thelma's previous crimes or by his instructions to the jury, nor had Velma received ineffective counsel. Now, was Bob Jacobson relieved or dismayed by this decision? I don't know. It's a really bittersweet ruling. And if you think the name Judge Franklin Dupree is familiar, we met him in episodes 21, 22, and 23 on the Jeffrey McDonald trial, covered in my A Wilderness of Error trilogy, and then the Medicast update on McDonald's prosecutor, James Blackburn's book, Flame Out. So it's a long story, and you need to listen to it if you haven't already. Small world, right? So 23 people now sat on North Carolina's new death row, with Velma the only woman, and a huge issue erupted. Would North Carolina Governor Jim Hunt execute a woman? Well, what a sexist question when I think about it. The law should be applied. Male, female is completely irrelevant. Fortunately, times do change. Now, this coincided with Velma losing her spiritual counselor, Hugh Hoyle who had taken a job in Kansas. Crushed, they had grown close all these years, but Hoyle agreed to conduct Velma's funeral service if the time came. Velma's new chaplain was Phil Carter, who himself had once been an inmate. Slowly, these two began talking, praying, discussing religion, and he came to be her new confidant. Sadly, during all of this tension and upheaval, Ronnie's marriage to Joanna had collapsed, with him actually going into a psychiatric hospital given all the medication he was taking. Yes, yes, Ronnie couldn't believe he was drugging, repeating the cycle begun by his mom. Ronnie kept all of this from Velma, 
sparing her and carried this burden alone. His secret was blown in March 1983 when Velma was in the prison hospital for angina and Joanna and six-year-old Michael did not visit. Velma held Ronnie as he cried, more than he had since he was a boy, fearing he would be cut out of Michael's life. Later, Velma would say, quote, Ronnie let me be his mother again, end quote. An eight-issue appeal was filed in the Fourth Circuit Court in Richmond, which was due to be argued March 8th. Burr and Little had both changed jobs by this time, but they vowed to stay with Velma's case without pay. And then the hurry up and wait set in. It wasn't until October 4th, 1983, that Burr went to Velma with news. The court had rejected all the issues that they had raised. They'd appeal, of course, and they'd go to the Supreme Court once again, but they were starting to run out of options. And legal fact, not fun fact, but legal fact. The North Carolina legislature approved execution by lethal injection as a more humane means of killing rather than the gas chamber. On March 16, 1984, James Hutchins became the first man executed in North Carolina since the death penalty resumed. This story, back in 1979, after arguing with his wife and nearly strangling his daughter, James Hutchins fled. Arriving on the scene, Deputy Roy Husky tried to speak with Hutchins, who shot and killed him. Sergeant Owen Messersmith came to assist Husky, and he himself was shot to death as he got out of the patrol car. Before Hutchins was subdued, another officer, Robert Peterson, lost his life. Hutchins was tried, found guilty, and sentenced to death. Nationally, he'd be the 15th person executed in the U.S., the third to die from lethal injection. And soon, Velma Barfield would be in the center of a chaotic madness as protests against her execution began in earnest. Easter 1984. At Jimmy's urgings, the whole family visited Velma. Ronnie and Kim, plus grandchildren, minus Michael, Velma's brothers, Olive and John Kane, and sister Faye. Jimmy recorded a video of this family reunion, planning to show it to the governor during their clemency plea. Tears, hugging, and a remorseful Velma was shown, and Jimmy also issued an update while all were gathered. After years of appeals, they might think that the process would just go on forever, but it wouldn't. They'd appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they'd get a result in weeks, and it might be over. Hence, they were preparing for the clemency appeal to the governor, their last resort. They had to show the governor that Velma had turned her life around, that his compassion would not be misplaced, and that Mama Margie had a positive influence on other prison women. If clemency failed, there would be an execution. Jimmy Little unleashed a publicity campaign to put pressure on Governor Hunt. TV, newspapers, magazines were contacted, with Velma seen as a sympathetic figure in a state where two-thirds approved the death penalty. New York City Village Voice reporter Ellen Schoen met with Velma and Kim, who shared her heart-wrenching struggle to accept Velma's end. Schoen probed deeply into Velma's life and crimes, with Velma often breaking down. The most difficult burden of her life was the guilt she carried around for so long. 
they also confirmed that their father had molested her as well as Velma. Schoen asked directly, had he actually raped Velma? Velma said, quote, yes, he did. My minister asked me if I'd ever thought about telling my mother, but I never did. She just wouldn't have believed me. I did feel rather angry at her. I couldn't understand why she could not protect us. After I got grown, I began to see. I know she was just as afraid of him, and more so maybe than we were, but I do feel bitter towards her. End quote. In a 7-2 ruling, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear Velma's appeal. With the Supreme Court's refusal, State Judge Franklin Dupree's stay evaporated, and he issued her a new execution date, June 13th. On June 5th, the Page One Village Voice article ran, Does This Woman Deserve to Die? The edition was A Grandmother on Death Row the longest, most detailed story to run outside of North Carolina, and the effect was electric. All three major networks, and that's all there were at the time, this is long before cable TV and streaming, wanted interviews, reporters clamoring, with letters pouring in, pleading for clemency for Velma. Velma appeared on NBC and CBS news programs, discussing her drug addiction, her remorse about the murders, with Kim saying her mother was a warm person with a large family that loves her, a devout Christian. Joe Freeman Britt felt somewhat differently. Quote, far from being some sweet little old grandmother, that woman is a cold-blooded killer. Don't let anyone kid you. She wears this nice little grandmother cloak and her religiosity as a kind of protection. And if she gets out, she'll kill again. Hell, she probably poisoned half the county if we only had the resources to exhume all the bodies for autopsies, end quote. You're going to hear more about what I think in a bit, so just hang in there. Before the state judge again, Jimmy Little asked for 90 days to file a reconsideration before the Supreme Court, with the judge granting a new execution date of August 31st, 79 days away. Grateful at first, Velma then got some jarring news from a very reluctant prison superintendent, Jenny Lancaster. Seems the Department of Corrections ordered Velma transferred to Death Watch at Central Prison, stunning everybody. Death Watch is a bleak environment that normally death row inmates went to about five days out, not 79. It's an isolated dark, tiny bare cell just outside the execution chamber. Aghast, Velma's belongings were tossed into a trash bag, and she could only keep her Bible and a recent letter from Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife. Visits were restricted to two people in a tiny booth. If she met with her attorneys, she'd be strip-searched on her return, and she was denied access to Pastor Carter as well. Carter threatened to resign and go to the press. He believed this was retaliation from the governor's office due to the embarrassment from all the publicity. He stormed into Jenny Lancaster's office, finding her as upset as he was, and Jimmy Little blew his stack as well. Prison administration soon learned of a very disgruntled staff at Central Prison. Their concern? Isolating Velma from all the people she knew this early was putting her into conditions that was a cruel and unusual punishment, a violation of the Constitution. 
And just like that, those who had been working with Velma at the women's prison were permitted to continue to see her at Central, but they were under a gag order. Later, it was learned that Secretary of Corrections James Woodard was recalled from vacation to put a plan into effect to isolate Velma after she'd been on the two national TV networks. Lots of political shenanigans here. When Little called the governor's legal counsel to get Velma sent back to women's prison, he was told the governor could not involve himself in Department of Corrections matters. What a crock he just had. God, I hate this stuff. A press release went out saying the reason for Velma's move was security. Right. So Velma, who had not one single infraction over five years, was going to try to escape? All right, a serial killer she is, but Ted Bundy she is not. Not at five foot three, 168 pounds, at age 51 with heart issues. Then the Department of Corrections announced a new rule limiting reporters' access to Velma Barfield. Little now called his own press conference asking, why was Velma subjected to conditions no other inmate had suffered? And only after her side of the story was beginning to be told. Hmm. When the first press conference with journalists was arranged, Velma refused to participate in protest. All right, believe it or not, I've skipped over a lot of the politics involved in all this. But suffice to say, a heated 1984 election was going on between Governor Jim Hunt and incumbent Senator Jeffrey Helms which literally is the beginning of the current ideological political divide that we see going on today. And the attention Velma's case was getting was not appreciated, nor the pressure on Governor Hunt. June 13th, the relatives of the victims were having a rough day. Alice Storm, Margie Pittman, Sylvia Andrews watched the morning news, seeing that Easter video of happy Velma enjoying her grandkids the one that Jimmy Little had recorded. Stuart Taylor had grandchildren he'd never lived to see because of Velma. John Henry Lee also lost out on seeing his grandkids marry and have kids of their own because of Velma. The media blitz prompted deep disgust and anger. They didn't believe Velma's sudden religious conversion, remember, begun after three days in prison. They thought Velma had attended church her entire life. She herself admitted that was all presentation and shallow. They rejected the claim that Velma killed because she was drugged up and out of her mind. She killed because she took pleasure in the agonies of the victims, feigning concern for them as she played the role of sympathetic caretaker to the hilt. Quote, Velma was a person without conscience, a charmer and manipulator who was now fooling a whole new set of people just as she had once fooled them. End quote writes Jerry Bledsoe. The Village Voice article barely mentioned the victims, a painful oversight. Another article written by News and Observer journalist Jenny Carroll was very sympathetic to Velma. Once again, the victims' families were never contacted for comment. Upset, they deeply feared if those working on Velma's behalf were successful, one day she would be paroled and some other innocents would die. A jury of her peers had listened objectively to the evidence and sentenced her to death. It needed to be carried out. 
the family members now began organizing their own campaign fighting clemency. Velma had shown no mercy, no kindness, no leniency to her victims, all of whom could well be leading fruitful lives. Alice, Margie, and Sylvia began calling newspapers, started a petition drive, and arranged for people to speak to the governor against clemency. Articles began appearing in the Fayetteville Times and News Observer and Sentinel, focusing on victims and the justice they deserved. July 2nd, U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice Warren Burger granted Velma Barfield a stay of execution, surprising the state and the defense. At the crux of it, Chief Justice Berger was concerned about juror disqualification, whether a potential juror who indicated opposition to the death penalty, but hadn't specifically said he would always vote against it, could automatically be excluded. Now, Velma was sent back to women's prison, released from death watch, elated and greatly relieved. August 16th. The Supreme Court dismissed Velma's petition for rehearing without comment, automatically dissolving her stays of execution. Resigned, Velma was very concerned for Ronnie and Kim. Governor Hunt remained ever elusive, saying that, quote, every case needs to be looked at individually and given full consideration, end quote. The law dictated that an execution should be set between 60 and 90 days after a hearing meaning an execution would likely occur two weeks after the November election. This required hearing was held before Judge Giles Clark, who listened to both sides carefully. Judge Clark determined Velma would be executed on November 2nd, four days before the election, which plopped the issue right back into the heart of the senatorial election. Claiming that this was never a political matter, Governor Hunt told the media it would have no impact on the election. Well, good try, but that was unlikely. If Hunt allowed the execution, he might alienate those opposed to capital punishment. If he gave clemency, he'd alienate the supporters of the death penalty. Interesting fact. Judge Giles Clark went to school with Jim Halsoser, a former North Carolina Republican governor who appointed Clark to the bench. Well, what a tangled web, right? Tackling this head-on, Governor Hunt announced that he would listen to both sides September 18th and 19th, and he would make a decision on clemency with no regards to politics. Then, an interview with Dr. Selwyn Rose was published in the Winston-Salem Journal. Remember the psychiatrist who testified on Belma's behalf at her hearing in 1980? Saying Velma was a cold, weird lady, the psych evaluation done before her trial was only cursory, and she had deserved a thorough evaluation at the time. Really, Dr. Rose? Now you're speaking up, huh? Okay, let's just make it more complicated. Grabbing onto this, Richard Burr contacted a psychiatrist from New York who had done significant work on violent criminals, Dorothy Ottnow Lewis. In her work with violent juveniles, she noticed that many suffered severe head injuries during childhood and believed there might be a correlation between injury and subsequent violent behavior. Fun fact, or maybe it's a neurosciency fact, but Dr. Lewis is correct. She and neurologist Dr. Jonathan Pincus 
who I have mentioned previously, confirmed that damage to the prefrontal cortex, the top layer of the brain that controls behavior and judgment, could lead to violent impulses and poor behavior. Speaking to Lewis, Velma confirmed that she had been knocked out as a kid when she was about 10 years old. She also had a serious bike accident at 14, not to mention her car accidents, which had also caused blows to her head and blackouts. Did this play a role in her non-violently poisoning her victims? It may have, because these injuries can impact rational thinking. The sexual abuse Velma suffered was far more extensive than she had previously acknowledged, with Velma still reluctant to provide details to Lewis, given the negative response from her brothers when the issue came up originally. To paraphrase, Lewis concluded that Velma suffered from bipolar mood disorder and depression. Her manic episodes were characterized by uncontrolled behaviors and severely impacted judgment. Little now went to the state Supreme Court to file an affidavit on Velma's behalf. With her family bracing after a long discussion, Velma decided if clemency was denied, she wanted no more stays of execution. They decided that only Little and Burr would act on her behalf, hoping to ward off others inserting themselves into her case, given the enormous media coverage. It was time to end the suffering and pain for everyone involved. Then news came from Governor Hunt. Facing Velma, Jimmy spoke. The governor is denying clemency. Velma accepted it calmly, telling Jimmy that he and Dick Burr had done everything anyone could. Ronnie, now divorced, was living with Aunt Faye and her husband, and all were crushed hearing of the denial. Faye ran screaming into her bedroom, inconsolable. Later, Faye saw Velma, telling her she had a confession. Just after Stewart's death, Faye called the Lumberton detective, telling him she suspected her sister had killed Stewart, their mother, and likely many others. I suspected it had been Faye. When Faye's suspicions proved correct, she felt relieved that Velma's murdering was over, but she had betrayed her own sister who had been like a second mother to her. Holding Faye, she and Velma cried together, with Faye's feeling of guilt lessening, and the only thing between them now was love. Kim and Velma also spoke intently, letting go of the hurts from years ago and cleansing their very souls. Velma told them of her shame and pain of inflicting this on her children. It was more than she could bear. Kim assured her mother that she had been there for them. They discussed funeral plans and decided Velma would be buried with their father, Thomas Burke. Another visitor who was a great source of religious comfort and friendship was Anne Lotz, the daughter of Billy and Ruth Graham, who'd been corresponding with Velma for years. Velma called Anne Collect and was finally able to speak to Ruth and Billy Graham, and they chatted like old friends. Billy prayed with Velma, saying, quote, Velma, in a way, I envy you because you're going to get to heaven before I do, end quote. And a prayer of Velma's was granted. She got to see her granddaughters and grandson Michael, Ronnie and Joanna's son. They had a lovely visit with her holding her grandson in her lap, reading books, and playing games. Spurred to introspectively examine his past, Ronnie began having a vivid dream that repeated. Flames beginning in a trash can beside the bed, 
flickering higher and higher, fueled with wads of paper, with Ronnie clawing himself trying to escape them. But this last time, upon waking, a memory resurfaced from weeks before his father died. Thomas had shown Ronnie something in his bedroom, a plastic waste can that had something burned in it. One side of the can was melted. Quote, your mother set that fire while I was sleeping, end quote, he told Ronnie. But Ronnie thought his dad was a drinker who probably dropped a cigarette. They'd argued about it, with Thomas insisting Velma was trying to kill him. In the shock and the grief in the aftermath of his father's death from a fire and smoke inhalation, Ronnie suppressed the whole conversation because of its lethal implications. But now he knew. His father had been correct, and the latter fires in their house had been set by his mother, too, committing arson to collect insurance monies to buy her drugs. He needed to speak with Velma. After a long, silent pause, Velma told Ronnie, quote, I've wondered if that was going to come up, end quote. Ronnie reassured her of his love no matter what she's done, asking softly, quote, Did you kill him? I'm sure I probably did, end quote. Velma couldn't recall it all, but Thomas was drunk again, and they'd argued and he'd passed out on the bed. She had a cigarette or a match in her hand, and she laid it at the foot of the bed, closing the bedroom door behind her, and left for the laundromat. A fireman had told Ronnie that the bedroom door was shut, and Ronnie knew that wasn't right. His father never closed that door. Quote, you know I wasn't in my right mind, Velma told him, end quote. Velma Barfield would write a book, Woman on Death Row, with a pastor of hers assisting. In this book, she writes of killing her first husband. Quote, the anger in me built up against Thomas. He'd been so good in the beginning of our marriage. Now he could hardly keep the same job. That morning, when he half stumbled into the house, I said to myself, I can't take this any longer. I cannot stand it anymore. I took extra medication, and he nodded off while sitting in the chair smoking. The cigarette fell out of his mouth, rolling onto his shirt. If I hadn't grabbed it, he would have set himself afire. I put it out and screamed, I don't care. Burn yourself up if you want to. Thomas roused himself enough to drag himself to the bedroom and fall down on the bed. He didn't bother to undress. I got in my car and picked up my niece, and we drove to Mama's, picking her up as we took our clothes to the washeteria. End quote. Now, this book was written while Velma was on death row after her religious conversion. Velma Barfield, the born again Christian, is still lying. She didn't put out the cigarette and leave, she deliberately put it on the bed so it would burn Thomas Burke to death. Her killing Thomas Burke was a twofer. He was a drunk, treating her terribly, fighting all the time, and she took him out. She got insurance money, and she got to buy her drugs. She could have gotten a divorce, but she's a good Christian woman, so she murdered him instead. Yeah, I'm not buying Velma's story here. She set the fire. She closed the door and she murdered him. So one night, the family was watching a news program, 60 Minutes, and there was Velma being coy, telling Diane Sawyer that she'd killed three 
or four or, well, three people. And Ronnie was just disgusted. Her execution date was set. She's facing God and she's still hedging while enjoying being on TV. He knew she'd killed five and likely Jennings Barfield too, which made six. Now, Ronnie went and pressed Velma on this, reminding her that Jennings was probably killed by arsenic. Recall, at her trial, Velma adamantly denied killing Jennings. But now she said, quote, Ronnie, I may have done it, but if I did, I don't remember it, end quote. Do you believe her? Well, unknown to Ronnie, Velma admitted killing Jennings to her ghostwriter, that minister, Cecil Murphy. And this book and the collaboration had been Ruth Graham's idea, a testament to Velma's faith, which could inspire others. When Murphy asked about Jennings, Velma insisted diabetes and emphysema killed him. But he knew her well now, and her tone was off, and Cecil Murphy trusted his gut. He said, quote, you killed him. She looked at me for a minute and then nodded slowly, and she said, I'm so glad. Now there's nothing left to confess. She had put arsenic in Jennings' medicine, end quote. Now, what does Velma's book say about this? Well, here you are. Quote, life with Jennings got worse. I can't be under all this. I've got to get away from the pressure. I bought a bottle of poison. My God, what am I doing? Stop. I was so confused. Part of me cried. It was the only way. Another part of me was begging to stop. This will make him sick, and then he'll be sorry he caused me so much trouble, and he won't do it again. That afternoon, Jennings had difficulty breathing, and he started vomiting. He's sick, and I better get help. I rushed Jennings to the hospital. It was a Sunday. The doctor called me out of the room, saying, I can't give you much hope that Mr. Barfield will make it through the night. Jennings died at 10 a.m. the next morning. I blanked out what I had done to cause Jennings' death. Whenever disturbing thoughts came to me, I reminded myself of his emphysema, aggravated by his smoking, and his diabetes. He was in terrible health when I married him. I didn't cause his death. His lungs gave out. End quote. Well, at least she's admitting it, if not fully. And I'm sorry, this is still self-serving. So Velma killed Jennings Barfield, just like she tried to kill Dolly Edwards and her own daughter, Kim, and son-in-law, Dennis. She gave Stuart Taylor arsenic at dinner before he took her to a religious revival. That is how much of a Christian woman she is. Slow, methodical, agonizing death for the man she claimed she wanted to marry. All right, so Velma is a classic textbook female serial killer. Quoting from a new book, Just as Deadly, The Psychology of the Female Serial Killer by Dr. Melissa A. Harrison. Many FSK, female serial killer, cases feature lying, exploitation, manipulation, callous disregard for the welfare of others, and a lack of remorse. Moreover, FSK may actually view themselves as victims, a clear sign that they may be processing their actions through the lens of psychopathy, end quote. Well, Dr. Harrison might as well be describing Velma Barfield personally. Female serial killers begin murdering later than males, beginning in their 30s and 40s. 
Velma was 37 when husband Thomas Burke died of smoke inhalation. She was 42 when she killed her mother. They kill for a longer period of time as well because their methods are less obvious. Dr. Harrison's research shows that 50% use poison to kill and asphyxiation comes next. And 75% of female serial killers do it for profit. In this case, money to buy drugs and the lives and consequences be damned. They kill the people closest to them. Her mother, two husbands, a fiancé. She poisoned Kim and Dennis. Female serial killers are often caregivers, so Velma checks that box too. And the new data reports that 25% abuse drugs and or alcohol. Compared to the 2019 data for the United States, which puts abuse at 7.7%. Thus, female serial killers are at a threefold risk of abusing substances. This is Velma 2AT. But recognize the number of addicts or alcoholics who become serial killers is infinitesimal, teeny, teeny, tiny. This is why I am so skeptical of Vilma's apparent heartfelt religious epiphany. She was certainly wily enough to recognize that a conversion and desire to help others was her only chance for clemency. And while saying she was sorry often to her family, her attorneys, to the victims' families, she still continued to lie, which is a sin for a Christian. Now, two New York City lawyers decided to intervene. Notorious defense attorneys, William Kunstler and Ron Kuby, who found two issues that might have legal legs. One, Velma's incompetence to stand trial during her drug usage, the depths of which was not known during the trial. And two, prosecutorial misconduct by Joe Freeman Britt, something never delved into on the federal level. Kuby wrote, quote, his summation was replete with inflamed calls for vengeance, discourses about victims in general, ridicule, and viciousness, end quote. Barr and Little raised the issue with Velma, who was very concerned about the impact on Kim and Ronnie's mental health, and her odds were not good. Speaking to her children, they insisted it had to be Velma's decision. Ronnie felt she was being taken in by false hope and wanted nothing to do with this. Still undecided, Velma agreed to let them draft a motion, but not file it. Another huge decision. Velma had to choose lethal injection or gas chamber. The process for both was explained, with Velma selecting lethal injection. She would be given sodium pentothal to put her to sleep, then a paralyzing agent would stop her heart. Execution was six days away. Velma told Ronnie of her decision about the motion, quote, Jimmy and Dick think they've got some really good issues this time, and I've told them to go ahead, end quote. God damn it, Ronnie yelled, jumping up outraged. Furious, he told her, quote, you're going to die next Friday morning, and it's time that you and your goddamn attorneys accepted it, end quote. Velma burst into tears as Ronnie stomped out and this visit would cause Ronnie to lapse into depression. Death Watch Warden Nathan Rice kept security tight while Velma was upbeat and joking. 
Waiting for Jimmy Little to arrive, she was nervous as her makeup and hair rollers hadn't arrived yet. She was watching an ABC News program, which ran an interview with her and Little, and she told the guards that they were filing a motion and she'd be granted to stay while the court looked into the issues. Deeply upset, Ronnie felt he'd betrayed his mother in her hour of greatest need. He'd cursed and walked out on her. He was considering driving into a tractor trailer to end his own pain. Little called, telling Ronnie that this isn't about him, it's about his mother, and she has to make her own decisions. And Ronnie knew he was right. Taking Velma's call, Ronnie apologized, and Velma heard all the hurt he had been concealing. She explained she wanted to live, and she just had to take the shot. And Ronnie promised her if the execution went forward, he would be there. The motion hung on two issues. Fact. Valium addiction was unknown when Velma's trial took place. And prosecutor Joe Freeman Britt's final argument before the jury was highly prejudicial, which had not been raised previously. This legal foundation had only resulted from a 1983 Supreme Court ruling. If the judge did not grant the stay, they would go to the state Supreme Court. That failing, they'd go back to Judge Dupree in federal court and then to the Fourth Circuit Court again. And if all of that failed, they still had a final shot at the Supreme Court. When the press showed up at Kim's to get her reaction, she was incommunicado. Husband Dennis said, quote, We're not hopeful at all. We've been up and down this thing so many times that we've just become calloused. Our eyes are fixed on November 2nd. That's the reality for us. End quote. Judgment. Judge Ellis was unconvinced, ruling that there was no merit, refusing the stay. Forty minutes later, Little filed the next paperwork in federal court. Velma remained in high spirits. No one should feel sorry for her. The execution chamber was actually a gateway to heaven. After a restless night, Velma learned the steps that would be taken for her execution. The time frame, securing her wrists and ankles, cardiac monitor and stethoscope attached to her chest, intravenous lines inserted into her arm, which required good veins. She would be visible to witnesses for approximately 10 minutes before the execution began. She'd be administered the drugs, go to sleep, her heart would stop, there would be no pain. Thursday, the family checked into a hotel a mile from the prison. Ronnie would join them later that night. Thelma had chicken and dumplings dinner, and a special surprise sent from Warden Rice, her favorite, a Kit Kat bar. Thelma was overjoyed. He didn't have to do that, she mused. Before Franklin Dupree, Dick Barr argued that Velma had been in a drug withdrawal and irrational. Quote, she got on the witness stand and argued that arsenic poisoning could not kill someone, then applauded the district attorney, end quote. Taking time to mull the issues, Dupree would reject her appeal. Next up, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals at 8.30 a.m. Friday morning. Her execution was 30 hours away. Velma slept on what could be her final night. This would be the busiest day on death watch. Visits began at 9 a.m., tapering off at 5 p.m. She wrote many letters, and a guard would have to remind her to get dressed. By 9 p.m., she was handcuffed and ready. 
At the Fourth Circuit, Barr thought he had won over one judge, J. Dixon Phillips, but he needed one of the other two, Judge Francis Merhagen or James Sprouse. But from the questions they asked, he was doubtful, and he was right. The Fourth Circuit denied Velma a stay, refusing her appeal. Execution was 16 hours away. Pastor Hugh Foyle arrived at Central Prison, carrying his Bible, and he went to counsel Velma. He broke the news to her about the Fourth Circuit. Resigned and accepting, Hoyle told Velma he brought the letters that she had written for the family back in 1981. He promised he'd deliver them for her. But Velma only had one request. Could he be with her children tonight? And he promised he would. Velma now told everyone she was not appealing to the U.S. Supreme Court. It was over. Kim collapsed, utterly devastated. Ronnie wanted to lie down, almost in a stupor. His mother's fate was certain for the first time in six years. Carol Oliver, captain of Velma's guards, heard the news and hurried back to Death Watch. They were having an execution. While Velma was calm and collected, the rest of her guards were strained and nervous, more affected by Velma's decision to drop her final appeal than she was. Outside, Reporters, satellite trucks, protesters from both camps gathered with signs, chanting, and passion. On their way to visit Velma for the last time, Ronnie and Kim were diverted to Warden Rice's office taking seats. Now, for the record, Warden Nathan Rice denies this occurred. But, separated by decades and living far apart, Jerry Bledsoe writes, that both Ronnie and Kim's memories of this incident match. Rice held out a marijuana joint to them. Baffled, Ronnie wondered, was he offering them something to soothe their distress? Then the warden spoke, quote, Do you have any idea what the penalty is for smuggling drugs into prison? End quote. My God, we're being arrested right before mom's execution, thought Ronnie. Rice explained, a bathroom matron found it on the floor immediately after Kim had left the bathroom earlier. Now wait, years later, Kim admitted to smoking weed, but was not using it at this time, and she balked that that was not hers. Rice announced that he was denying them a final visit with Velma. Ronnie went crazy, leaping up saying that he was not going to stand for this. He and his sister had to see their mother before he killed her. If he needed to get Jimmy Little to call Governor Hunt, he would. He was also going to go outside and shout this news to the media who would love to know how the children of Belma Barfield were being treated. Taken aback, Rice conferred with some other prison personnel, deciding to allow the visit. All right, I am at a loss of what this schmuck is trying to prove by this hijinks, but this is crazy. Go do the execution, man. Focus. Focus. By the time Kim got to Velma, she was hinged on a nervous breakdown, putting her head in Velma's lap. Ronnie was sitting at her feet, regressing. Velma told Ronnie to take care of Kim, and she needs you to be there for her, and she was worried about Jimmy, how he'd hold up. Was there anything left they needed to discuss? No, no, they assured her all of those issues had been talked out, and they began to reminisce about fun memories from childhood. Velma was so proud of her kids. 
tearing up and apologizing again for embarrassing them. And then it was time for them to go, exchanging I love yous, sobs, hugs. Ronnie finally got Kim off their mom, and they left. Ooh, ooh, okay. Death Watch was now morose. Velma asked for cheese doodles and a Coke. Burr arrived, struggling with his emotions. He was a guy who fully committed to his clients, and he had already lost three to Florida's electric chair this year. Later, he would go on to handle the sentencing phase of Timothy McVeigh's defense for the bombing of the Oklahoma Federal Building and became perhaps the country's top death penalty lawyer. Now, however, it was Velma who was comforting him. With hundreds of protesters milling about with signs saying, eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, and bye-bye Velma, it was a circus of activists. John Henry Lee's granddaughter, Teresa Britt, told reporters, quote, I feel sorry for her children. That's their mother, and they're sticking by her, and I admire that. But it doesn't change anything, end quote. Alice Storms remarked, quote, I think there are four kinds of death, natural causes, accidents, a life that is taken without permission, and execution. Velma Barfield deserves to be executed. She literally pulled the switch herself, end quote. Two ministers prayed with the victims' families as they waited for justice. It was time. Dressed in a new pink cotton pajamas and a fuzzy pink robe and slippers, Velma moved to get on the gurney. Chaplain Phil Carter began to read from Romans 14. Speaking to all, Velma said, quote, Thank you for the kindness you've shown me and for the times you've shared God's love with me, end quote. The chaplain departed. At 1.40 a.m., four law enforcement officers, two people from D.A. Britt's office, Jimmy Little and Ann Lotz arrived to witness the execution. It was dim, the only light coming from the other side of thick glass dividing the chamber. At 1.50 a.m., the big locks on the gas chamber door opened slowly as Velma rolled in. Time seemed to turn so slowly. Finally, Warden Rice entered announcing, quote, We are ready to proceed with the execution. Are there any final orders? End quote. There were none. Hooking up the execution cocktail, three executioners pressed plungers releasing the flow into Velma. One of the tubes was fake, hoping to relieve them from the responsibility of killing her. Hoyle began to pray with Ronnie, Kim, Ray, Dick Burr, Dennis, and Jenny Lancaster as Velma began counting backwards. 198. Her voice drifted away at 90. The next set of executioners entered the chamber, picking up new syringes and simultaneously pressed plungers. Dr. E. Scott Thomas, the prison physician, sat before the heart monitor, listening. Her breath diminished minutely, color fading from her face. At 2.10 a.m., the heart monitor went flat, and she slipped away. Philip Brown, the Assistant Secretary of Corrections, announced the execution had been carried out to the gathered. Alice, Margie, and Sylvia began to cry, with Alice managing to say, quote, 
Tonight, I feel as though a heavy burden has finally been lifted from me. Now I can visit my father's grave and know he can finally rest in peace. I feel that justice has been done, and it is a shame that some people had to be hurt in the process. End quote. Her sister Sylvia added, quote, Finally, justice has been done, but the pain of how my father died will always be with me. Our prayers are with the family and the friends of Velma Barfield. We realize the hurt and loss they are going through. End quote. Back at the hotel, Jimmy Little handed Ronnie and Kim cards. Velma had written her son, quote, It is the eve before my execution, and I am alone thinking of the two best kids in the whole wide world. I love you and thank you from the depths of my heart for how you have stood with me through all these painful years. My heart is so full of gratitude for what you've been to me. I feel so fortunate to claim you as my very own, end quote. Ronnie was urged to prepare his heart to meet her in heaven and she ended it, I love you, Mommy. The funeral took place in Fayetteville, overflowing with friends, family, and supporters. At graveside, Pastor Carter read Psalm 27, and Hugh Hoyle stepped forward for the committal. Kim was filled with anger, deciding she needed counseling. Two years later, her marriage failed, and she and Dennis would share custody of their girls. By 1997, Kim had a new managerial job with a large company, owned her own home, and had a new beau. She picked up her life, and she was happy. Few knew her mother was an executed serial killer. Ronnie had best intentions, but he had suppressed feelings and resorted to alcohol to cope. He had few sober days over the next few years, drifting apart from Kim, and he cut off all contact with his son, Michael. When Aunt Faye and Cliff got divorced, Ronnie moved in with Cliff, also an alcoholic. He wonders how he survived these first five years after Velma's death. He reached out to Jimmy Little, who rented him a small room in an old house. Pulling himself together, he cut down on his drinking, taking a warehouse job. With some hiccups along the way, by 1991, Ronnie was sober. When Michael turned 18, Ronnie called the courts to make out a payment plan for his back child support. After nine years of silence, Ronnie called Kim. Invited for Thanksgiving, it was their best since childhood. Eventually, Ronnie and Michael reconnected, and the awkwardness eventually faded. Ronnie apologized to the young man his son had grown into for being irresponsible, for treating him and his mother the way he had. Ronnie was ashamed, and he vowed he would do better. And Michael accepted, and they would do better. Ronnie now began to process how he felt about Velma and the murders of his father, grandmother, and other victims. Family members suffered the collateral damage of a serial killer relative and the horrible emotional roller coaster that they were forced to ride by circumstances. And my heart goes out to all of these families. Why? Why did Velma Barfield do this? In her streamlined self-serving autobiography, Vilma writes about how she was worried about paying Stuart back after she forged the check. Quote, it was nearly time for Stuart to get a new bank statement. But if he's sick, he won't feel like looking over the bank statement. If he's sick, he'll just let it pile up. And in the meantime, I can figure out how to replace the money. On my way home, I bought another bottle of poison. Even though I knew what I was doing, I couldn't connect poisoning him to the suffering he would go through. By that time, poison was my antidote to the unbearable. I knew it would help. It had helped before. 
end quote. Yeah, well, it sure had. She's a poisoner serial killer. Killing with poison necessitates careful planning, which requires guile and subterfuge. This kind of killer dislikes physical confrontation, instead choosing verbal and emotional manipulation. Feeling inadequate, they develop a strong need for control. Raised in a tense, abusive home, several psychologists would describe Velma as emotionally immature. Like many, she used drugs to squash anxiety and displeasure, failing to understand we all have anxiety and displeasure. It is a part of life. Her motivation was simple. Money for drugs. Like most female serial killers, she chose victims who were sick, physically compromised, appearing to be a caring nurturer as those she cared for died at her hands. Her facade of care and concern turned into tears and grief after her victim's death, the inscrutable mask of normalcy in place. Her religious enlightenment was useful to her, replacing one addiction with another, which is better than not, but recognize that her goal was avoiding execution. That is a great reason to resoundly display your faith in letters, TV interviews, writing famous evangelicals who can take up your cause for you on the outside. She wanted to live, so there was a method to her madness. Does a religious epiphany negate six murders? Absolutely not. She's a serial killer. A jury of her peers determined that she should be executed, and this is after the new and approved Supreme Court rules made better, fairer death penalty laws. Listen, our system isn't perfect, and it needs continued improvement, but a serial killer case is rarely so badly put together that it warrants overturning a jury's verdict. And we know that foreman Ronald Tutton was exceptional in his due diligence as foreman. Velma is a career criminal. Her forging checks to steal money was criminal. Her abuse of prescription medication was criminal. Doctor shopping to get around the law, criminal. Three arsons, one resulting in a murder, the others in insurance fraud, are all serious crimes. Looking back to her early interviews with Sergeant Lovett and Detective Parnell, she denied killing anyone. She denied it to Ronnie. She told Alice Storms it was the hospital that screwed up. She tried to get off and would have gone on to kill others. After the father of her children, Thomas Burke, died by a fire she set, she told Ronnie, quote, I'd rather have him here drinking than dead, end quote. A lie. She played victim all along, poor Velma. That is cold, cunning manipulation. She knew Ronnie suspected she'd killed his father, but Ronnie dropped it, blocking it out. If he hadn't, would Ronnie have died of arsenic poisoning? I believe yes, for all she loves her son. Remember when Ronnie was in the army and Velma claimed to be having a nervous breakdown, overdosing, all manipulation. When cornered about a past due loan, Velma killed her mother. When they decided to do an autopsy on Lily, Velma took an overdose, causing commotion and distracting the family. This was before she knew a typical autopsy didn't look for poison. She learned. When Jennings was going to divorce her, she killed him. When Dolly and Montgomery Edwards realized she was forging their checks, she killed them. The same with Stuart. Poor guy had no idea who he was provoking when he decided not to marry the woman who hadn't told him she'd been in prison. This is not some kindly, unfortunate granny who got caught up with drugs and didn't understand. She calculated it all. 
It's great that she was able to help others while in prison, but it makes not one iota of difference to those she murdered. They are still dead. I am not without compassion. You heard me break down just telling you this story. And I do believe that people can change, but she cannot resurrect the dead while denying her culpability. Velma Bullard Burke Barfield isn't a victim. She is the poster child of the female serial killer. Now, some good news. Dr. Harrison writes that, quote, Gary Rogers, a retired forensic coroner and homicide investigator, estimated that the probability of being murdered by a serial killer in North America is 0.0004%. For you to die at the hands of a female serial killer, it drops to 0.00067, end quote. And that concludes my trilogy on death sentence. Read the book. Jerry Bledsoe tells an amazing detailed story that you cannot go wrong. I promise you. Thanks for listening, Murder Bookies. Uh, I need your help. Please leave a five-star review wherever you listen and find one new person to listen to an episode. Let's grow, grow, grow. And our next book, Solving the West Georgia Murder of Wendelin Moore, A Cry from the Well by Clay Bryant and Clay's newly released book, The Cold Case Murder of Fred Wilkerson, Untangling the Black Widow's Web in West Georgia. Author Clay Bryant, an investigator, has a remarkable personal story, which makes these cases that he solved all the more fascinating. So be ready for my first twofer, both incredible stories that intersect. You can email me at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com, and I am on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Check out the Warm Weather merch on Spreadshop. The designs are kind of cute, if I do say so myself. Lock your doors and windows. Trust your gut, murder bookies. I see you as you hear me. You can find my sources, snack, and wine information on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosena and lyrics by Otto Harbach.